do you get nearly a thousand of the world's allegedly most dangerous criminals all to use one app that just so happens to be controlled by worldwide law enforcement? Yes, this week on Download This Show, inside the weird world of Anom and the role it played in what is shaping up to be one of the biggest crime stories of the year. Also, dozens of the world's most popular websites like the New York Times, Twitch, even Spotify disappeared offline last week. It's all thanks to one company that underpins a huge part of the internet that we experience. Plus, are you more likely to swipe right on a dating app on somebody who is vaccinated? And we ask arguably the most important question of the pandemic that not nearly enough of us are asking, why are we wasting our time on Zoom when we could be making holograms of each other? Let's find out. This is your guide to the week in media, technology and culture. My name is Mark Fennell and welcome to Download This Show. Yes, indeed, it is a brand new episode of Download This Show, and we are joined by brand new guest, the co-founder of The Daily Oz, Sam Kozlowski. Welcome to the show. Thanks so much. It's great to be here. New blood on the show. Well, if you don't bleed on the ground, that's all I ask. Um, That was weird, but anyway, let's commit to it. Uh, Also on the show this week, analyst with the Australian Strategic Policy Institute, Ariel Bogle. Welcome back. Hi, thanks for having me. All right. So uh, it turns out uh, you should be careful of what apps you download if you happen to be a master criminal. I don't know if you saw the news this week. It would have been hard to miss. Uh, More than 800 suspected criminals uh, were arrested worldwide after being tricked into using an FBI-run encrypted messaging app, which raises all kinds of questions. Sam, I'm going to start with you. Firstly, what was the app in question? So the app was called Anom, and it took a few days for the true description of the app to kind of make itself known in the media. It turns out it actually was a handset that you had to buy that was stripped of all other mobile technologies except for this app. And it was a way for organized crims to communicate around the world on what they believed to be a totally off-grid platform. One of the interesting observations that a lot of the law enforcement bodies made during the week was that they could actually watch the criminals screw each other over. And they they were surprised with how much backstabbing there was in the app itself. You could clock with an egg timer how long it's going to take somebody to make a 12-part podcast out of this. And a Netflix series. And a Netflix series and and 14 books. Ariel, let's just start with how they managed to get these criminals, well, alleged criminals, let's say, to download this app in the first place. Where did that idea even come from? Yeah, like Sam said, I think we need to put a big asterisk over all discussion of this app because (laughs) the story is really still rolling out. So when we first heard about it in Australia, the federal police did a big press conference and they said the idea for this operation and the app had been hatched over a couple of beers. Uh, But once the FBI released its documents in the US, we started to get a bit more of a nuanced picture of how it all rolled out. So in fact, they hadn't built this app from scratch. It turned out there was somebody in the United States, a criminal of some sort, I think in California, who had started building the Anom platform himself. And then when he was in touch with the FBI for some reason, he offered them the technology in exchange for something like a a lesson prison sentence or something like this. And so from there, the FBI started developing the platform in conjunction with the AFP and other police forces and started running it. But what's interesting, I think, it's not just that they built the technology and that they had this master key on each message to decrypt it and store it, which is what's 
it's allowed this like quite insane eagle-eyed picture of international crime, but also that they had this network of distribution. So they were able to sort of seed the app and the phone into various criminal networks who and the criminals started uh, essentially recommending it to each other, including quite a high-profile uh, Australian-Turkish man who's now um, considered to be one of the key figures pushing out this device. And he's been invited, I think, to turn himself in um, for fear of what might happen to him out there, given his pretty instrumental role in ensuring all these people were using essentially a backdoored platform. So it's a sort of a mixture of technology, but also the distribution, which is really important here. So as as a piece of technology itself, is there something, Sam, that makes it stand out from other forms of, I want to say, surveillance technology, for lack of a better term? As far as I understand, no. It's more about the distribution of the technology that made this special. There are lots of different types of encrypted communications that organised criminals use. And the idea even of a unique handset and essentially a high-tech burner phone is not new either. Mm. What's different about this one is just how quickly it was adopted by organised crims. There were 25 million messages intercepted over three years in 45 languages. So they got a lot more than they bargained for. And I think that is why they shut down the app at the time of their choosing is because the workload was just getting so <laughs> massive that they couldn't handle how many messages were coming through. The data and the information collected from this app, is it legally permissible in, in all the different territories where they've arrested people? Well, that will be the test. We'll have to wait and see whether um, the courts consider this kind of information culled from this app to be admissible in court. So in Australia, the AFP indicated that they did rely on a pretty controversial at the time set of laws, the encryption laws for short, or the Assistance and Access, uh, the Toller Act that was passed a few years ago. And they haven't been clear yet about what provision of that act they relied on. Uh, they say that that won't be revealed until it's uh, sort of disclosed in open court. So it could be uh, some of those tools, I, I suppose, the law gave police to request as, uh, assistance from a technology company to decrypt technology in some way. More likely, it's a computer access warrant, which was also part of the set of laws. But it seems a quite a complicated picture in the United States as well. Generally, it seems like the United States, uh, the FBI, were not able to decrypt or access the messages themselves. The Australian uh, federal police were doing that on our side, sending sort of general information back to the US. And also a mysterious third country was involved who were also decrypting and storing the messages and sending back thrice weekly bulletins to the US. Under what kind of legal provision that was occurring uh, also remains somewhat of a mystery. But there are a lot of people, obviously, for many reasons, have a lot of questions about the legal provisions relied upon because... <laughs> You know, it's pretty unusual uh, for a police force to be running technology that criminals are using themselves, although not entirely unprecedented. We've kind of seen similar actions take place on dark web websites where cops end up running a dark web marketplace. But once again, you know, there's a lot of questions here about laws, entrapment, all kinds of things, and I guess we'll see that play out. So, Sam, um, you've, you've spoken to members of the FBI. Talk me through what it is you've learned and what was the most interesting thing you gleaned out of that. So I had the opportunity to speak to the legal attaché for the FBI in Australia, Anthony Russo, last week. And the legal attaché is basically the FBI's representative on the ground. And that itself is interesting. The fact that the FBI has a presence in Australia is, is fascinating. So he leads quite a big team out of Canberra. And the most challenging question I asked him was, is there really a need for encrypted apps anymore if 
the idea of encryption is now somewhat redundant. We're not sure if now WhatsApp is being intercepted by law enforcement. And he gave a very American response, which was that that's a discussion that we need to have with our elected representatives and the trade-off between safety and security and privacy is one that we're going to have to grapple with now forever. That is a very diplomatic answer. Very diplomatic answer. (laughs) I'd also question like what do you mean by encryption being redundant because encryption was sort of functioning with this app. It was just being there was a master key to decrypt that the police held. Similarly, WhatsApp remains encrypted. There's a built-in backdoor or there's another set of eyes on it Encryption will only get you so far, Sam, right? Exactly. It's kind of, if we take a bit of a philosophical approach to what encryption... And this is RN and you know you, we love to do that. <laughs> totally, I'm in my element here. <laughs> encryption is only as good as the number of people that can read the message. So that was really interesting to hear from him. The other interesting discussion that we had was I asked him whether this was just going to be now a case of whack-a-mole, whether all the crims were going to go to another app And he was very convinced that this was an historic moment for organised crime busting in the world. I think everybody agrees it's pretty extraordinary in its scale. You know, the number of uh, devices out there that were being used, the number of messages that were being intercepted, even the number of arrests that have been made off the back of data gleaned from this product. I mean, it is extraordinary. And it does point to a bigger picture in criminal communications. Uh, I will uh, caveat that it's not something I'm expert in, but in general, like there have been other platforms that have attempted something similar to a NOM, but without the being backdoored by the FBI bit. There was Phantom Secure, EncoCrypt. They keep getting shut down by law enforcement. And now you have a wildly popular platform having been run essentially by law enforcement So if I was running some kind of um, illegal operation, I would be pretty unsure where to turn. I mean, these criminals do seem unwilling or they would prefer to use something off the shelf, something custom built for their purposes rather than using, say, an iPhone with Signal. And But you do wonder at this point whether iPhone with a Signal app would have uh, been far more secure than an op. Download the show is what you're listening to. It is your guide to the week in media, technology and culture. Our guests this week, Sam Kozlowski from The Daily Oz and Ariel Bogle from the Australian Strategic Policy Institute. Mark Fennell is my name. And last week, around about Tuesday, you might have had trouble accessing a range of websites. In fact, a jaw-dropping number of websites around the world suddenly became unavailable. And it took a little while to work out why. And actually, it unveiled a little bit about how the internet works, Ariel. What exactly happened? So it turns out that a company called Fastly was somewhat behind the breakdown. And Fastly is what's known as a CDN or content delivery network. Basically, a CDN uh, helps you get to your websites faster. They kind of own typically or rent space at a range of data centres across the world. So that say when you want to access the New York Times website, you're accessing a version of the New York Times that's on a data centre or on a server closer to you, maybe one in Sydney if you're in Sydney, rather than having to fetch the version of that website from the United States. So it just adds or removes time, makes the split second uh, loading time much faster. And so what happened with this CDN, with Fastly, they had some kind of configuration error by all accounts. They were only offline for about one hour and a cyber attack of some sort has been 
pretty much discounted at this point. It was kind of a mistake at that end, but a mistake that knocked off just innumerable websites, I mean, news outlets, but also government services websites. And it really does point to some of the vulnerabilities in our internet infrastructure, which I'm sure we're going to get into. So we're talking about the New York Times, the BBC, Financial Times, The Guardian, Reddit, Spotify, Twitch, Stack Overflow, GitHub. What does that tell you about, uh, you know, just how diversified our internet structure actually is, or I guess kind of isn't? It tells us that we have a fragile construction of the internet that we're working within. A really interesting point here is that the stock price for Fastly actually went up 12% in the day after this disaster. Because everybody realised how many clients they have? Well, I think it's a matter of Fastly's name was in the news a lot and Mm. that was a lot of all news is good news. But also they were promoting how quickly they responded to this disaster and the 55-minute turnaround that they got everything back working. And that was seen as a good result, I think, by the markets. But for users like us, it shows that something very quickly can shut down some of the main ways that not only we communicate, but that we shop and that we, you know, for example, when it shut down the British government's website, that's a major piece of public infrastructure. Mm. So, um, yeah, it was it was concerning to, to live through it. It was about 8.30pm here in Sydney uh, when it happened and it was a true shock to not be able to get onto news websites. Ariel, when you said earlier that it was ruled out that it was likely a, an attack, walk me through that. Why was it ruled out? Well, the company itself hasn't come out and said that it was. I think if if there had been something like that, they would have had to come out and say so under various sort of reporting provisions in the US and other countries where they operate. But also other people were looking at it and the sort of um, speed with which they, they were able to get back online kind of indicated that they had full control of their systems and they weren't battling something um, too untoward. But, you know, it shows just one of those little mistakes can really... Um, screw things up, basically. We saw something similar in Queensland recently where I think a similar sort of configuration error knocked the internet out for much of Queensland um, for a couple of hours. And that's distinct even from some of those bigger actual attacks we've seen in recent years. You might remember the Mirai botnet um, that did a denial of service attack just directed using um, all kinds of uh, Internet of Things devices, fridges, modems, etc., and just directed a stream of traffic at a DNS provider. And that's kind of the phone book of the internet, for want of a better way to put it. Also knocked all these kinds of websites offline, Amazon, Twitter. So, you know, it doesn't, it could be a cyber attack. It could be a configuration error, but there are a lot of ways that the internet can be, uh, the functionality of what you want to do on the internet can be removed. It's also, when I was looking at the CDN landscape this week, there's really not many players in the field. Mm. So, it's going to be easy for Fastly to keep their market share, move on with the fact that they've had a bit of a stuff up and, and got back on their feet. They've put it down to a bug that was implemented in a customer re-verification tool in mid-May that only made itself known to the systems on the night of the outage. So it would be pretty remarkable if they went back on that and said that it was some sort of sinister attack. I think we can rule that out. Is it preventable, Sam? The CEO of Fastly was asked that question and the answer that he gave was basically, we do the best that we can, which was, I thought, quite a Facebook response. They've often come out and said, we always have as much checks and balances in place, but inevitably bad stuff's going to happen. So yes, it is preventable, but just with any other technology, you don't know what you don't know. Mm. So I think there's no way that a company could come out steadfast and say, 
we are immune from the same bug that Fastly experienced last week. You can never be 100% sure that your systems are going to operate all the time. There's bugs that can creep in. There are um, ways that someone can just hit the wrong button. You know, I think it's good for companies to come out and be as transparent and honest as possible about the errors that cause incidents like that because it helps other companies, other CDNs surely, but other companies that perform similar functions to uh, get on top of this stuff. And yeah, more transparency, the better on this kind of thing, I think. But it's interesting. We wouldn't say this about an aircraft. We wouldn't, <laughs> we wouldn't say we're doing the best that we can. It might go out for one hour a year. I mean, I'm, I'm fairly sure Boeing did do that at yeah. some point in the last couple of years. But, but, but I, I take think, your point though. Yeah. And the, I think it, you have to look at different websites differently. I think the way that it re- took down um, UK government websites is something to take a closer look at. Mm. I mean, I don't think it's the end of world if Twitter or the New York Times goes down for an hour, but we need to look carefully at critical services. So, if a bushfire um, notification website went down in Australia for an hour during bushfire season, that could be truly significant. So we yeah. need to ensure and make sure our governments are ensuring that certain platforms are more resilient than the rest of the internet. Download the show is what you're listening to. It is your guide to the week in media, technology and culture. And can I just get a show of hands who's sick of Zoom? What if you could replace Zoom with a mirror in your house that reflects a hologram-like reflection of a person in a different space. That is the promise, I guess you could call it, of a new service that uh, Google have been touting. And honestly, I just want to talk about holograms and whether or not they're a real thing or not. Ariel, can you explain exactly what it is that Google have have touted? Do so with your standard level of scepticism. I enjoy it a great deal. (laughs) Well, (laughs) once again, with... There's the point as well. Once again, we're talking about a piece of technology that none of us will get any closer look at than reading about it or watching a YouTube video for many years. Uh, Anyway, here's how it works. Ah, So it's the Google Glass of of, of 2021. Love it. Yes. So Google called it, I think, like a magic window or a magic mirror of some sort. And it's in, in existence in just a few Google offices. So it's certainly not on wide release and not even on wide release within Google. But how I understand it works is you just kind of a variety of like depth uh, capture sensors and cameras to record somebody's face, transmit that face and movement over to the matching mirror on the other side and display that in kind of a 3D as lifelike display as possible with very little latency. I think that's what's really interesting here, that lack of latency. According to this Wired article I read where they got to have a close look at it, it was, you know, almost real time. And that's what you want, certainly, if you're trying to build this more intimate experience with a hologram, um, rather than that kind of 2D flatness that we're all familiar with from Zoom or, you know, uncountable other video conferencing devices. Sam, are you ready for your hologram future? (laughs) I feel like these guys sat around the table and went, what if we could do Princess Leia for Zoom calls? (laughs) And then somebody said, no, no, no. What if we could do the mirror from Harry Potter? Oh, yeah, yeah. And they've run with that idea. Because I've always thought the first move into this space would be the Princess Leia, you know, someone pops up in that palm of your hand. So it's interesting to see that obviously a lot of investment has gone into making something that is actually more structured in its appearance, but also then not as easily replicable. Well, I guess the problem with like 
holograms as they were sort of posited in science fiction, so the holodeck in Star Trek and, and the Princess Leia from this, is that you can't, you, you need a vector to project against, basically. And I think the what they've offered here, and again, like, you know, all the caveats about the fact that it doesn't actually exist yet, but I think what they've offered here is at least something where you could kind of see how it would sit in a house. You could kind of see how you would use it. And also, you know, credit to them for picking their moment. They've, you know, we've had 18 months of people being thoroughly sick of Zoom. I mean, if, if nothing else, it's a, it's a PR reflection on that. To be honest, I will take, like I will take at this point. I would much rather, you know, if you're listening on the podcast, what not, might not be obvious is that Ariel's not in the room with us. She's joining us from the Canberra studios. And I would, I would gratefully take a weird mirror in the corner of the room to be able to see you roll your eyes at me, Ariel. <laughs> oh, that would be great. <laughs> Just so for the you'd... rolling eyes or more conceptually? <laughs> Oh, you know, I'd love to see your face too, Mark. <laughs> would you buy one, Mark? Uh, yeah, in a heartbeat. <laughs> in a heartbeat, I would buy one. Um, Even if it's some, it's like literally a booth, like a telephone booth that you'd have to have in the corner of your room. Yeah, I mean, the, my kids have too much stuff. They can clear out some space, right? Hey, kids, and bring them home in a booth. So, okay, so let's talk about a little bit about whether there are competitors to this. Is, is, are there other hologram-adjacent or, you know, technologies out there that, that are doing something similar, Sam? There's no competitor that's gone to market with a retail-friendly product. And I think that is a really important part of this discussion is these are technologies that, as you said before, take a room to build. So it's essentially an early iteration of a computer. Mm. Uh, nobody's mastered the retail-friendly hologram. In general, when you look at this tech, it often uses headsets. So it's more in that sort of VR space where you have to kit yourself out with the headset and stuff. And that's where the appeal comes in here too a bit, I guess, in that you don't have to put on the gear, you just have to step into a booth. I can see the appeal there. But in terms of the Zoom thing too, I think a lot of people are using these video chat technology really like on the go. So once again, I'm a bit I guess I'm a bit sceptical of having to have such a significant piece of infrastructure in the corner of a room where these kinds of chats take place. And they can really happen, uh, you know, based on what I saw of the Google uh, Starline project, one-on-one. So you can't have that co- group conference thing that we were all using Zoom for. Mm. There is increasing use of projected technologies for really amazing purposes. The Kardashian example is not a great one <laughs> of its use in society, but a really good example is the way that they are documenting Holocaust survivor testimony Mm. so that Holocaust survivors can be projected in in somewhat of a 3D form and school children can actually ask questions and there are thousands of pre-recorded responses for students of many coming generations to engage with as close to a living example of a survivor as possible. And I think that's an incredible use of hologram technology. Uh, Obviously, the key limitation there is that it's all pre-recorded, but there's some really smart people working on many canned responses so that it feels as as legitimate as possible. Ariel, are there good examples of hologram-esque uses out there that that you like, that you think are worth investing in? No, I think, I mean, as Sam said, that example does sound like very worthwhile use of the technology technology. There have been similar kind of stunts perhaps to the more uh, Kardashian, uh, Kanye West example where they had like Tupac come back at a concert and things like that. I mean, you know, in the way that these technologies evolve, there are always going to be stunt uses and then around the edges there will be more uh, sort of longer term potentially more useful uses as well. So I don't want to be too sceptical, but I, <laughs> I it's not, to be honest, the hologram technology space, I think I'm going to give it another decade and then come back to it. Download the show 
is the name of the show. It is your guide to the week in media, technology and culture. Very quickly before we go, would you be more likely to date a person if they had been vaccinated or not? That is an idea that has been broached in the UK with a number of dating apps, Tinder, Match, Hinge, Bumble and all of the rest of them, offering the ability to tag whether or not you've been vaccinated and... I want to do this because I just want to see if you two can have a sceptical off. Um, Sam, good idea, bad idea? I feel like I have to keep playing the hope guy today (laughs) in this episode. Um, I think it's a great idea. I think it's the more information you can get about a possible partner, the better. We already digitalise health records. We're used to that. I'm I'm totally open to the idea of dating someone. I'd probably still go on a date with somebody if they said they were open to being vaccinated. Um, it doesn't have to be a prerequisite to a date. But, well, it's a bit hard right now, given yeah, you know yeah. what phases we're all in. But yes, but I think it's an interesting question that um, that that would come up on a date with me. So you know, might as well get that out of the way first. Oh well, well now you broadcast it on national radio. <laughs> Ariel, do not feel like you have to play the sceptical card. The field is wide open for you here. Do you think <laughs> it's a good idea or a bad idea? I'm going to surprise you because I'm going to say it's actually a good idea. Unreal. (laughs) (laughs) Yay, the show has a happy ending. (laughs) Yeah, because, you know, for a variety of reasons. So, like, just to walk back, the UK Health Department or one of the social services departments over there has partnered with, like, Tinder, Match, Bumble, I think, Hinge even. And so if you put a sort of sticker on your profile that says you've been vaccinated, you get access to all kinds of special features. So you get, like, a Tinder boost, a boost to your profile or a super like, things like this. So... That aside, they're not actually attaching it to your medical records. It's just a voluntary sticker. So I guess you sort of have to rely on people's um, trustworthiness there to believe whether they're vaccinated or not according to their dating profile. But, you know, when you look at the reasons why people get vaccinated overall, there are kind of like steps in the decision making or sort of when you're building a social incentive to get people vaccinated. You know, the number one one that we're having, you know, significant problems with here in Australia is access. Firstly, Mm -hmm. we'll have to be able to get a vaccine full stop. Please put a needle in me. (laughs) Secondly, you know, you have these ideas around community example, and this is where this taps in. When you see your friends and family, when you see your community, people you looked up to, people like you getting vaccinated, even if you might have some questions and doubts, you're more likely to investigate and get vaccinated. And then there's that next point, which is incentives. So all over the world, actually, there are certain incentives being offered for people to get vaccinated, uh, gifts or, you know, just um, the reward of social approval. And that's where this comes in too. So for many reasons, I think it's a pretty interesting and worthwhile experiment. If it was linked to your medical records, I would have a different point of view. But given it's voluntary, given the situation in the UK, I'm all for it. Do you think it helps with vaccine hesitancy writ large, Sam? I think it's uh, a good way to signal to other people that you're super proud of your vaccination status. Um, So when we're striving for something as close to herd immunity as we can through herd vaccinations, the more that we can emphasise that it's a positive thing, whether that means you land a date and that hits with a particularly young age group that, you know, uh, free beer, that would probably also hit with a young age group, but other benefits wouldn't hit with the <laughs> younger age group. I think I think it's it's worthwhile. Yeah, you get a free house deposit, all these things. Have you heard about the one in Ohio? No, oh, no. What's the one in Ohio? That if you get vaccinated, you go into a lottery to win a million bucks and they're giving away a million dollars a week. 
Yeah, it's funny. I heard um, from a, a digital, like a health ethicist who was like, it sounds like counterintuitive, but actually if you did the maths on how much money you spend on public awareness campaigns, the kind of a media attention doing something like that gets compares very favourable to spending in a certain amount of money on a public health campaign in yeah. that particular part of the world. Yeah. Obviously, I still think we should do public health <laughs> campaigns. Please don't read that. It's not, not doing that. But uh, they were saying that, like, the amount of publicity you get out of an event like that would actually equal to far more than the million-dollar payout that you would get. But that is a conversation for another time. Ariel Bogle, thank you so much for coming back on Download the Show. Thanks, Mark. And Sam Kozlowski, how was the experience? Unreal. No bloodshed. Well. Haven't left the room yet, and have you? Uh, thank you so much. Please come back and do the show some more. And with that, I shall leave you. Thank you for listening to another episode of Download This Show. Listener.